Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, the Dr. Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello, everyone. Hey, now. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. <laughs> uh, we are joined today by uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, someone that I'm proud to call a friend and someone that I am very uh, also proud to trumpet their uh, grand accomplishments in the world of federal law enforcement. His name is Mike Carone. Uh, was one of the true great G-men that Detroit FBI office has ever had in its midst. Uh, worked a lot of organized crime cases in his career that started in the uh, mid-1970s and spanned into the 2000s. Um, and uh, he's a, a good friend of the program as well as a good friend of mine. Mike, thanks a lot for joining us again here on the OG Podcast. Hi, Scott. You're quite welcome. Thank you for that uh, nice introduction. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very uh, well-earned. Um, and I Thank think you. I think the uh, we're gonna do a little deep dive in into a specific nook and cranny within the Detroit organized crime family. We're gonna look into what was known at the time as the Capitol Street Social Club crew, which was a sub subunit of the Jackaloni crew, uh, run by the infamous Jackaloni brothers, Anthony Tony Jack Jackaloni and Vito Billy Jack Jackaloni, who were really the uh, the names on the marquee. Uh, of the Detroit crime family uh, from the late 50s all the way into the new millennium. And, and Mike and his guys were, were uh, you know, the linchpins in, in combating that from a federal law enforcement perspective. Uh, the reason we're going to talk about this today is because one of the original Capitol Street Social Club uh, crew members, Paul... Brusilov, who was known as Jew Paul, I, I'm not just, <laughs> it's kind of a crude uh, nickname that uh, was, is not very uh, uh, racially sensitive, but uh, nonetheless, that's what he was known as. Um, and uh, he passed away at 95 uh, this week and was really the last member of that group um, to, uh, to walk the streets. He's been retired for a good decade plus, but uh, we, we say goodbye to Paul Brusilov, uh, who was the right-hand man to Freddie the Saint Salem, who I'm eager to get Mike Carone's take on. So why don't we just start off um, just really quickly. Capitol Street Social Club was a, a group of, of Jewish and Middle Eastern bookies that were headquartered out of Oak Park, Michigan, right over the Detroit proper border. Um, in between eight mile and nine mile on Coolidge, and uh, Mike, uh, just give us some of your impressions of that group. Well, they, it was a a normal hangout for uh, those folks. Um, Salem, as you mentioned, Al Haiti, uh, Bruce Aloff, uh Mike Kristoff, Superfly, and um, it was it was basically a pool hall in there, and uh, uh, these guys would go over there early in the morning. Uh, if we needed to find somebody, that's one of the first places we checked to see uh, whose cars were there and uh, sit around and wait, see who came out, see who went in. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Salem was was the, uh, uh, the main person we were interested in because of his associations with with uh, Billy and Tony uh, Giacalone and with, uh, with Billy's kid, uh, Jack V., and uh, of course, with Alan Health, who was, uh, uh, you know, one of the premier bookmakers in town, and probably the one that these guys answered to, and and took uh, some of their orders from. So it was a it was a place, a known place. Uh, 
it was it was in a uh, like you said it was a nine mile Coolidge area. It was not a very dangerous part of town, so it was it was easy to sit sit there and and uh, not be noticed and uh, be able to see the comings and goings. It was kind of a light industrial area. It was kind of tucked and, into a uh, into like a, it's part industrial, part like just residential. So yeah, it's not it's yeah, not like. I think people, when they envision social clubs, they think of the traditional New York City social clubs, which are kind of in the middle of a uh, a bustling neighborhood. Yeah, right, yeah. But this was like, think of like a, just a, a regular row of traditional houses on the side street in a suburb of a major city. Um, and there were, uh, in addition to the residences, there were some uh, warehouses and, and, and industrial places that were around those residential houses. But uh, this wasn't in uh, the Capitol Street Social Club wasn't, uh, you know, in a shopping mall or in a, uh, a main downtown area where there was a lot of activity. It was in a quiet bedroom community. Right. It was, um, uh, I mean, and, and you could, it was right on Capitol Street and the, I think the entrance was there, but you could, if you were paying attention, you could drive right by it. There was no flashing signs or like you say, a, a bustling activity there, people coming and going. Uh, and, and most of the time those guys are there up until mid morning or lunchtime. And then, then they'd leave. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't like it was going all hours of the day. Well, you know where they would go, Mike. They would they'd go up the street to the uh, to the uh, uh, the pool hall, the chalk and queue. Yeah, and they'd spend their yeah. afternoons yeah. and early evenings hustling uh, in that pool hall because Paul Bruce, in mm-hmm. addition to being a high profile, high connected mob bookies and gambling operatives, they were they were pool hustlers, Freddie Salem and, mm-hmm. and Paul Bruzola. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, of course they would, they would hustle guys that, uh, I think we talked about this guy before, um, uh, William Rosenbaum airplane, uh, airplane, airplane bill, bill, Mr. Boeing. And, uh, they would, uh, <laughs> would do all kinds of things to try to get him into games, uh, rig card games, uh, hustling with pool sharks and, uh, just to take his money. And wasn't and he, they did. I mean, Mike, wasn't he from New York? I want to say around, I thought it was around the Baltimore area. Okay, well, he wasn't, so just to give people an idea of, of who this guy was, this airplane bill, um, he's this very, very mythological uh, gambler, mob associate uh, connected to the Detroit guys who wasn't really from Detroit. He might have had some connections here at one point, but they called him airplane bill because he would fly his private plane into Michigan or into Detroit and stay for weeks at a time going on these huge gambling benders. And everybody in the Detroit mob knew <clears> that this guy was the, the, the Mark's Mark, you know, <laughs> the guy that anyone and anyone could get their hooks into. Yeah, he was the big whale. Well, he had Rosenbaum Aviation and they were involved back um, when the CIA was running guns down to uh, Nicaragua and things and they had a a plane that had been shot down uh, there um, or uh, crashed or did something back in the, uh, this is in the uh, Iran-Contra type type days. And uh, uh, I, I believe one of those planes, if it wasn't Rosenbaum's directly, was associated with Rosenbaum Aviation. So you're right, he kind of had, he was a shifty character, but he, he was, 
he was all about making money, and these guys are all about taking the money from him. Right. He was about making it. They were about taking it. Uh, I've yeah. heard so many stories about Airplane Bill. Uh, I'll throw a couple out there and, and see if, if you've heard them and if, and if you can give any uh, I mean, are veracity we, are, are to them. Are you talking about the Barry Seal? Are you talking about the plane that like Barry Seal was flying that got shot down that basically op- started the whole Iran-Contra like yeah, scandal? Uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was Seal. I don't know what the – there was a guy who was the pilot. It was within that time period and, and, and within all of those machinations between yeah. the CIA right. and the drug world yeah. and the Yeah. Well, I I was sorry to interrupt, but that that's pretty huge. I mean that, I mean that was what st- ultimately when right. investigative reporters started looking into that, realized that yeah. there was this whole yeah. smuggling. It became a huge smuggling. White House scandal, scandal right. that, that engulfed the Reagan administration. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That that's pretty interesting. I didn't know there was like this Detroit Connection. I knew there was a guy, Palmer, who was... We would have to do a little more digging into what Airplane yeah. Bill's direct connection to that was. Yeah. Uh, as Mike says, he owned a, an aviation company that might have had some um, That's really some intriguing. connection, but I, I don't know enough of it to, right. to speak on the record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was called, it was called uh, Rosenbaum Aviation. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was quite the character. I mean, we... Uh, one of the stories Scott and I have talked about is that uh, during the health investigation with the gambling and everything, we had we had Rosamond in for the grand jury, and we had these guys on 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 the wire on tape talking about how much of a mark he was, how much of a goofball he was, how easy it was to take his money from him, and and we played those tapes for him to convince him that these guys weren't his friends and. and it, he didn't. He didn't believe us. I mean, he, don't believe us. Listen to him talk about you. And still, he uh, he he still thought they were his good buddies, his good friends. Maybe he didn't have any friends. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think as we know, if, if we've learned anything, or if our audience has learned anything, if I've learned anything researching uh, organized crime, these guys might be sharks, and and believe me, they're killer sharks. But they don't come to you with their fangs out, you know. They come yeah. to you, uh, and they seduce you. And then yeah. when you're yeah. at your weakest, uh, they, they pounce and they pray. Uh, mm-hmm. so I think that, that there are probably been thousands of, not hundreds of thousands of, of unsuspecting or, uh, you know, people that, that felt like they wanted a story to tell or, or wanted to get close to the flame, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, dance with the devil and, and walked away either, you know, light in the pocketbook <laughs> if they were lucky or if they were lucky enough to, to, to walk away at all. Um, yeah. and this is, I think a, another one of those cautionary tales. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and I had heard, uh, that airplane bill had had written a, a, a pretty sizable check for for one of his gambling debts. Yeah, I think it was it was uh, almost a million dollars, like nine hundred and fifty thousand, something around in there. And uh, uh, I'm trying to think, there was something that happened out in Vegas. They got him out there, and uh, uh, I think Hilf and Jack B, Jack Aloni, Billy's kid were involved in that and some other guys. I'm not sure about Bruce Aloff. Um, but uh, I know that, that 
you know, Freddie was was uh, aware of uh, Airplane Bill and and what he meant to the uh, to the group of them there, as far as uh, um, you know, an, an easy mark and a in a uh, a way to make money. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly the amount, but there was there was a big check that he uh, he did write. I mean, I think if you if you broke if you brass taxed it and you broke down. Uh, net gain from that Capitol Street Social Club for a time, for for a let's say a you know five ten year period there, um, you know maybe twenty percent of their annual take for the whole year was coming from scamming airplane bill. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And, and another thing, I uh, I got my hands on an FBI report, um, and it was a, in a reference to uh, one of airplane bills trips into town. And uh, and I think this illuminates some of the um, uh, some of the other anecdotes that we've been talking about and and, and going over these reputations and and uh, and whatnot, all these colorful characters. And uh, the story was that was relayed from a, a confidential informant uh, to his uh, FBI handlers was some point in the early eighties. I think it was uh airplane bill flew into town unexpected and Freddie for whatever Freddie Salem, the, you know, the skipper of the, of the Capitol street social club, who, who's that was his club. The Capitol street social club belonged to Freddie Salem and uh, Freddie, for whatever reason had taken the day off was spending it with his family and airplane bill, I guess was in for the day. Uh, you know, at one of their backdoor casinos, he's at the pool hall. Uh, he, he, you know, he was gambling on bowling and all things that are just right into Freddie's wheelhouse. And and Freddie finds out like the next day that Airplane Bill had had flown in impromptu, and uh, he, he either you know personally slapped around or had one of his his uh, crew lackeys kind of roughed up uh, as punishment for not cluing Freddie in that his his favorite mark was in town. Golden Goose was and, and, in And Freddie wasn't a tough guy. Freddie was a, you know, a gentleman gangster. Um, so that story might not really be uh, the most um, uh, uh, representative of, of who Freddie was as a wise guy. But uh, it, it shows you how how valued uh, Airplane Bill was as, as someone that they targeted and, and wanted to victimize. Let me ask you both something. Uh, not to deviate too much from Detroit stuff, but uh, Mike and Scott. So today there's casinos everywhere in Detroit, everywhere else. Increasingly sports gambling is legalized. Are there, are there as many marks like that today? Dudes that are wealthy who want to hobnob with tough guys and the, the, the mafia guys who are left can get their hooks into them. Is that, or is that, would you say it's changed today? Because there's so many legal avenues for, wealthy people to go play and blow their money. Like they can go to Vegas and blow their money at, or, or go to, go to the casinos here in Detroit. Does that make sense? What, what do you guys think about that? I think my uh, initial take on it, and I'll give it to Mike, mine will be short. I, I just think it's a different type of extortion. There, there's the amount of money that that's being extorted out of them or being fleeced from them is probably at the end of the day, the same amount. It's just being done operationally in a different way. They're not maybe losing that money gambling. Maybe they're losing that money to, to the mob guys in a, in, in a different forms. Like shakedowns yeah, I see. and, and, and involvement in white collar, I uh, see. wall street scams, scams that yeah. they don't even maybe know. That they're being, right. Yeah. 
Mike, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think um, it, you know because first of all, anything you win with a with a bookie, which you're not paying taxes on. Yeah, good so, point. I mean, uh, and uh, and and you have that vicarious thrill that some of these guys get from dealing with somebody that's in the, the mob or the gangsters, or you you you're doing something illegal, and that that gets gives people a somewhat of a disjointed high, I guess. I don't know. Um, we had, we had this wire up, uh, people would call up Alan Hilf and, um, or call up Alan. We had to wire one of the wires on him and, and they would get the line for, let's say college football games this weekend. And it would, it would be the usual. Okay. Number one, like when Mr. Boeing would call up airplane bell. Okay. I'll take, uh, you know, a dime on two, a dime on three. These would be the, the numbers would be designated to different games. And uh, we had some of the um, uh, uh, Caldean guys call up um, and, uh, and and bet with him. And then they would uh, call out to Vegas and uh, uh, or not, not call out. They'd be on a flight to Vegas to go out there and gamble. So they would be going out there to gamble legally. But before they did, they wanted to check with uh, – with uh, Alan and, and and see what the line was. They're, they're, I think they're trying to middle it, and uh, but they would check with Alan to see what what the uh, uh, what what he was offering and uh, uh, what his odds were. So I I think uh, uh, like Scott said, and and they weren't just involved in gambling; they were involved in other things too. The gambling was kind of a recreational sidelight that that they would, you know, be involved in, oh, by the way, you know, let's, let's do some betting. And, and, um, like with Emmett Denna, he was cashing checks for him. He was, he was laundering money for him. But he was also gambling a lot with, uh, with Alan and, um, uh, and, and going out to Vegas quite a bit. So, uh, I, I think he had, uh, it's, it's like, um, you know, when, uh, uh the, the numbers, you know, uh, the blacks play, uh, numbers all the time. The policy, the policy. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but they do it because it, it's, it's probably some, uh, a neighborhood person that, that's, uh, dealing the numbers. Um, and, uh, a lot of it was run out of the auto plants for many, many years and, uh, probably still is, but, but you're not paying taxes. You're dealing with somebody, you know, and if you can't pay right away, okay, you know, they'll give you a break and, uh, you know, they won't bother you right away. So there's, it, it, it's more of a, comfortable setting probably for, for most people to deal with, uh, with bookies and, uh, and, and that, I mean, uh, and, and you're right. Freddie was, uh, was, was a nice guy. He's, he's not going to go out and himself break anybody's legs. I, we could talk more about Bruce Olof. I got a, a story about Freddie and Bruce Olof. I can relate to you. Yeah. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah let, okay. it, let it fly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, when we did this big roundup, after the, the wire was over, I mean, they, as Alan said, they arrested every living human that day. I, I went out to arrest Freddie, and I, I went to his house there, his apartment, his condo, and, and he wasn't there. It was 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was a, a uh, everybody was going to get arrested at the same time. So um, his wife answered, and, uh, you know, I was by myself. Or no, I was with another guy, and uh, said, no, he's not home yet. I said, okay, here's my card. Please tell him. You know, it's important he calls. So I went over to the, um, uh, there's a Waffle House. It's not called the Waffle House. It's on, uh, used to be on Northwestern there, just around Telegraph. Um, 
I forget the name of it was. So I went there and the other guy was with had something else to do. So he left. So I'm sitting there having coffee and, and, um, uh, Freddie calls. I, I don't think I had a phone. I think I had a beeper, but he, anyway, so I call him and say, Hey Freddie, come on over here to Waffle House. And then we got to talk. So he comes over, drives over. Probably the, you know, probably the, it was probably the Maple House. Which used to be an old, old uh, yeah. pancake house chain it, around here. Yeah, it, it was kind of on an access road. It was a small place, Sunset Diner. That's the name of it. Oh, okay, I, I know where it is. It, right on, yeah, on Northwest Northwestern and Telegraph. I know exactly where it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it still there? There is a diner there. It's not. I don't think it's called the Sunset, okay. but it's still a diner there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so he comes over and we, you know, I show him. I tell him what's going on. I show him the copy of the warrant. With his name on it, and he goes, oh, "Okay." And he goes, <laughs> and he goes, "Who's getting arrested?" And I told him. He goes, "Oh, okay." He says, "Alan and Paul." He says, "I really need to take care of them." He says, "You mind if I drive the car downtown?" And I go, "What?" He says, "Well, everybody's getting arrested. They're going to need rides home." <laughs> I go, "Yeah." <laughs> I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, you know." Can I drive down and you arrest me downtown and then I give everybody a ride? Yeah, I can home. give Alan and uh, Paul, <laughs> Drew Paul yeah. and the general. <laughs> Very yeah, considerate. I go, I go uh, let me think about this. <laughs> I say, technically, you're under arrest right now. But you know what, Freddie? You know, you, you know me. I know you. You know, I, I know you're not going to do anything stupid, right? Go, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I look at. They said, we're going to go downtown. We're going to get back on the lodge here and go down, and, and you're going to get off and this and that. And uh, right across from the federal building, there's a parking lot. You pull in there, and then you jump in my car, and we'll go downstairs into the uh, federal building. So I said, if you go over the speed limit, if you don't go the way I tell you to go, I said, I'm going to run you off the road and shoot you. <laughs> so I said, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So he, he, he did what I told him and, and we got downtown, jumped in the car, took him upstairs. And, uh, by this time there had been uh, a lot of arrest and a lot of media attention over at the federal building there or at the courthouse. So, uh, people came back and said, yeah, there's all kinds of cameras and this and that. Freddie goes, oh, wow. I don't want to be on camera. I said, okay, Freddie, I'll do you one more favor. I said, I know the secret way in there. I'll take you in the secret way, and you won't be on TV. I said, but you got to, you got to be straight with me, and, and you know, no BS, and don't be a jerk. Oh no, no. So we, that's what we did, and we got over there, and and uh, I said, make sure you tell Alan how good I treated you. <laughs> I've never, so, uh, I've never. So, so we did that, and uh, um, you know, he, I, I said the only, I said, Freddie, I got to handcuff you when we go over there because. You know, people are going to be, I said, I have to, I can't, I cannot not do that. You know, okay, that's fine. No problem. Uh, I said, but you know, if you want to put something over your hands or whatever, but I said, I got to do that. And, uh, and we did, and we got over there, no problem. I said goodbye. And, and, and I think, uh, I don't know if I bumped into Alan later on another raid or something else. And he kind of mentioned, thanks for taking care of Freddie. You know, I said, well, he, he said he wanted to drive you home. I didn't want you have to take the bus. So, but anyway, <laughs> it turned out good. I think this could be a point where we we use Alan and Freddie as a way to discuss in more general terms 
uh, the difference between uh, the Detroit crime family and the Chicago crime family, the, the two premier Midwest uh, mafia uh, groups, and then the traditional five families in New York, where, you know, we're talking Freddie Salem and Alan Helf, uh, you know, with few exceptions, those two guys that were uh, Lebanese and Jewish, respectively, uh, Freddie was Lebanese and Alan was Jewish, rose as high as really any non-mob administrator in Detroit. I mean, Freddie was, for all intents and purposes, a captain um, without being a made member of the mafia. And Alan, by the end of Alan's life in, in the 2010s, he died in 2014, I believe. By the end of Alan's life, he was, for all intents and purposes, he was the consigliere of the Detroit mob. He was Jackie Jackaloni's, <laughs> you know, top advisor and right hand. Um, yeah, he was, he was like uh, Hesh. Uh, like Hesh from The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> so you had two guys that in, in the five families in New York City would, you know, would never be able to um, climb the ladder as high as, the, as they climbed it. Um, can you kind of speak to the, the differences in, in work in Detroit? And then you, you come from the East Coast. Your dad worked um, uh, OC in New Jersey. And I'm sure had some run-ins with with the guys in the five families as well as the Calvicantes in Jersey, um, and and maybe compare and contrast a little bit. Yeah, I, I think well, obviously on the East Coast there's a lot more people, so you had a lot more uh, Italians running around and uh, vying for power, vying for status and um, and and money, um, and uh, I, I think too. There was more. I don't. I don't know that uh, hate is the right word, but you know they they saw Jewish people and and uh, uh, folks of other uh, ethnic from other ethnic backgrounds uh, as lower class citizens as a lot of the Italians were when they first came to the country. You know, uh, way back turn of the century and before. Um, I, I just think uh, they were more violent by nature. You had a lot more. Uh, uh, infighting, you, you know, look at uh, John Gotti and, and what he did. And uh, I think as the, the older guys uh, passed away or and died various means, I think these younger guys that took over uh, uh, were just a, a lot more violent uh, culture and uh, had, a, had a more violent way of doing things. Whereas here in Detroit, he didn't have the numbers and, um, and, and they depended on, on guys like Alan and Freddie because they could trust them. And, and they never caught him doing anything stupid or, you know, shady or uh, un, underhanded. And um, uh, plus, plus they did a lot of the heavy lifting for him. And, you know, Jack Lowe's didn't have to do anything. And, and they, you know, kicked up, uh, yeah. you know, their fair share. Huge, them. huge sums of money are going up, uh, yeah. up the oh, chain yeah. of command. And, We've always said on this podcast when we're talking about the Detroit crime family, they don't, they don't see Italian or Jewish. They don't see black or white. They see green. They see green. <laughs> yeah. And if you can make mm-hmm. the money, yep. uh, you're going to have an opportunity to, to to do big things in, in, in the Toko's really crime family. And Especially the, the Jackalonis, even, even more so than, wouldn't you say, than the east side 
guys. Now, I, I mean, I know what you're saying, like organizationally, but the Jackalones especially seem to have. But they also planted a flag on the west side. There was no west side yeah, yeah. mob activity, in, right. You know, in the suburbs of Detroit until the Jackalones kind of decided to make a move, right, on that part of of the area. And and that's to like that's to like Mike's point that like the talent pool is limited. Right, so that it and makes, that's where all sense. the Jews. That's where all the Jews were. And yeah, that's where all the Middle Easterners. Right, were. so it sort of makes sense yeah. in that way, right? That yeah. that's who they would link up with. Um, and it, I don't know if there ever has been a situation. Well, maybe in Chicago. In Chicago, there was that North Side uh, La Kosher Nostra crew, Lenny Patrick. Um, oh yeah, that was for all intents and purposes was a capo. Yeah. Um, but in New York, I can't really think of any situations where you had. An entire wing of a crime family that was in charge of the lifeblood of said crime family because gambling at the end of the day is the wheel that it all spins around for 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 mafia activity for organized crime um you know the bread and butter is always going to be the gambling rackets and by the Late 60s, early 70s, the Jackalones, who were in charge of most of the gambling rackets for the, the Toko and Zerillis, uh, who were the, you know, the Silver Spoon gangsters and the, 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 the founding fathers and their kids, you know, the Jackalones uh, <laughs> farmed out, outsourced the, the entire day-to-day gambling rackets uh, to the Jews and to the Middle Easterners, specifically this group uh, this Capitol Street Social Club group. And they wasn't just the bookmaking, and it wasn't just, um, uh, it, well, it included bookmaking and included what was go- going on in Las Vegas. I know that uh, Freddie and some of his guys were in charge of um, cur- uh, being couriers from the skim money uh, at the Frontier and the Aladdin, the Edgewater, which were the, the casinos in, in Nevada that the Detroit crime family had uh, silent ownership in. Uh, Freddie and his guys were were in charge of uh, moving a lot of that money back and forth from from Nevada to Michigan, and then they were Freddie Allen and and Drew Paul, um, and then uh, another guy named Skinny Eddie Simona who was a, a Iraqi, uh, another Middle Easterner. Detroit has a lot of Iraqis, um, a lot of Lebanese, and a lot of Syrians. You mean Iraqi? You mean Chaldean? Chaldean, right? but yeah. but people from that yeah. aren't from Detroit don't really know what that means. Yeah. In Detroit, uh, Christian Iraqis are known as Chaldeans. Yeah, um, and they were also um, tasked with running all of the backdoor casinos that were going on. This was before MGM and the Motor City Casino and Caesar's opening in Windsor uh, and the Greek Town Casino. Um, the Jackalones. Uh, vis-a-vis the Capitol Street Social Club crew, Freddie and Allen, Paul, Skinny Eddie, um, were running, you know, at least bi-weekly, if not tri-weekly, uh, these, these, it was like a roving casino that would jump from residence to residence or, or, or a basement of restaurant to basement of restaurant or warehouse to warehouse where they would be running these huge uh, casino nights. Did these guys... Yeah, when, yeah go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, one, just to follow up on that, one of the places that Freddie had was Elmira Street there, which was around State Fair and 75 area, which we, uh, we raided, we put, we put uh, bugs in there. And, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was just an old abandoned looking house on Elmira Street. And they, 
would go there on, uh, I forget which days, but uh, usually seven or two days a week. And, you know, they'd show up around dark and, and come out when the sun came back up the next next morning and they'd go down in the basement. And uh, I was down there uh, helping them put the bug in, and it was it was a typical basement. And they had a pool table down there that they shot dice on, and uh, <laughs> you know had food and drinks and and things like that. And uh, Freddie was always there. Bruce Loft was always there. And uh, um, you know, uh, and and one of the other reasons that these guys were were good because you know let's face it, the Jackalones were were the ones who were calling the shots. So those are the ones that we were interested in as far as uh, trying to get uh, cases on them. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, these other guys, you know, Alan and Freddie, they, they didn't catch many cases. So they was o- they were always around to be active and doing things. And uh, and, th- and that's why they were, were uh, dependable. When the cases they took, Mike, were, you know, gambling cases. So right. and yeah, when Al- Alan did some stints in prison, but they were like, you know, two-year stint, 18-month stint. He, he right. wasn't going away for the, the basketball uh, <laughs> score sentences. You know, Billy Giacalone, even though it wasn't in one giant chunk, Billy Giacalone, you know, in his 75-year career in the Rackets, did 25, 30 years in prison. Uh, Tony, Tony, Jack, oh, Tony Jack only, no, Tony Jack only did uh, that, one, that one big sentence in, in, in seven years. Tony only yeah, did seven years. He, and he might have done a little I, bit I when he was the, a little kid. Yeah, I thought in the 60s. No, he, he got, didn't do any time. He beat those. He did some time. Yeah, he, he, nothing major. It wasn't really until the, the, it was a tax evasion case combined with an extortion case from up in Saginaw where he was, uh, had a nephew that was running a mini mob crew up in uh, Saginaw, Michigan. Because he, he was on trial. I mean, I, I know the. I've read the newspaper headline. I mean, throughout the 60s and 70s, yeah. wasn't he on trial all the time? Yeah. Kind of. But he beat those. He either got promote- tossed on appeal or see, yeah. he ended up pleading out and ended up yeah. doing probation or parole. I know that he had a big case in the 60s yeah. with DPD where he, where he, bri- he tried, to bribe, That's right. tried to bribe a DPD detective. But those were, those were state cases. Good point. But people, you know, they knew that people were looking at him all the time. And so that's why they had guys like Freddie and Alan around to, to do things. Cause I, I know the state police surveillance crews meant they were called M-A-N-T. They would follow a guy like Jack Loney, one of the Jack Loney's around for a week, let's say. And then they see who they met, who they did business with, where they stopped. And then they, then they would follow those people around figuring that they're the ones that are going to be doing the bidding for, for the Jack Loney's and, and to see what they did. And, where they went. So, uh, but you know, Freddie and Alan were dependable. They were trustworthy and, uh, and they were, I guess, fun guys to be around. And some of the Jewish guys were involved in narcotics too, like Candy Davis and a lot of Re- the, were, were those guys connected to Freddie, the, any of those Jewish guys? Not Maybe not Freddie, but Alan, Alan. Yeah, I can, sure, right? I can yeah. say that. And, with, and with, Haiti with and, and Al, right. And, uh, well, Al Haiti got himself in the middle of, uh, a drug investigation that I don't know if he was ever charged in, but we interviewed Patty Naughton, yeah. the undercover DEA agent who came into town um, along with Frank Panessa, who is the, uh, you know, the, the quintessential DEA undercover agent. Uh, they came into town in the 80s and helped make a case against part of the Jackaloni crew 
uh, it ensnared Bobby LaPuma, right. who was the Jackalones. Mm-hmm. It's like the Jackalones were the muscle for the family, and then the Jackalones, the muscle's muscle, Bobby the Animal LaPuma, um, got caught up in that, and Al Haiti was involved in the investigation, but I don't think Al Haiti got charged in it. But I, Mike can speak to it. Alan's dead, uh, RIP. Um, I knew Alan a little bit. But uh, Alan never took a drug case, a narcotics pinch. But I can say with confidence in, in my research and, and in my reporting that he, he was involved in, in the narcotics game. Yeah, it was interesting that um, uh, when I, I think it was Frank Usher, Frank, the Usher got out, for some, some reason we were paying attention to him when we set up across from his house there. And one of the first people to show up when we were watching, taking pictures was was Alan. Right. So yeah, Frank <laughs> not, Usher not was the yeah, perfect example. Early yeah. in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we weren't really sure who it was around the plate because Alan wasn't as fat then as he was when he passed away. And uh, uh, we'd say, Alan, who's the LC? And then one of the, one of the uh, OC guys said, oh yeah, <laughs> it's interesting that he would be there. But that also, I think, goes to what we're talking about. Frank Usher was a a black racketeer, a black gangster who was mentored by the Jackaloni brothers from the time he was a teenager. He was 12, 13, 14 years old hanging around. Now, he was obviously probably the only black guy at that in in that circle. Uh I think at the time their hangout back in the early 60s was called the Lusade Club, um the lower upper east side of Detroit club. Um, and, and that's where they were a lot. And I know Frank Usher was like an errand boy from them at that point. There's even a, um, mm. there's a, there's a picture from the free press, I think in, uh, the mid sixties of, of a, of like a 16 or 17 year old Usher, uh, carrying the Jackaloni's briefcases into a court appearance. <laughs> and then what do they do when he becomes an adult? They set him up with his own yeah. mafia family to run. And, yeah. and they invest in Frank Usher and what became known as the Murder Row crew. And that was Frank Usher's own uh, black racketeering kingdom. It wasn't just drugs. It was gambling and extortion and yeah. prostitution. Um, and they were paying tribute to the Jackalones and, and in some ways was were just another wing of the Jackaloni crew. And I don't think you've had situations in the past where the, the Italians work with, with, with African-American criminals, but I don't think ever to the extent that, that you saw here in Detroit between Usher and the Jackalones. And the fact that Alan Helf is showing up at, at Frank Usher's house. Yeah, and I can, also, I can also tell you that uh, when Alan Helf passed away in 2014, guess who one of his ushers was? <laughs> Frank Usher <laughs> was, one yeah. of, was one of the ushers yeah. at, at, uh, at, at Alan's funeral. Yeah, that tells you a lot right there. Yeah, but uh, I think that what you have going on in Detroit and Chicago and, and what you've had going on there for 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 decades and decades, obviously both crime families are, are, are shadows of their former selves, of, of their of their glory days, but the, you know, the, the organizations still exist. And, you know, the stories that we're telling, the anecdotes that we're uh, exploring here, when it comes to guys like Freddie and Allen, I mean, these are real outliers. Um, I mean, do you think your dad ever ran into, you know, when he's working, he's working the DeCalvicantes, I don't think he ever ran into, uh, you know, kind of self-contained, autonomous 
non-Italians that were working within the Italian substructure that had that much authority. No, for sure. Um, most of them had, had pretty cool nicknames. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you had, you had Sam the plumber and, uh, Richie, uh, Richie the boy, Barriardo. And, uh, you had big pussy and little pussy Russo, which yeah, is where the names yeah. came from, and, from the Sopranos. <clears throat> yep. And, um, uh, but no, I don't remember him talking about, uh, any of those things. Although it was funny, after my dad retired from the bureau, he went to work for Steve Wynn at the Golden Nugget there that was opening up. And um, one of the first surveillance pictures he sent me, uh, he was director of the surveillance, uh, Eye in the Sky. And uh, one of the first pictures he sent me, he said, you know, this guy is from Detroit. And it was a picture of Alan. <laughs> He's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Sitting there. Sitting there playing, uh, I forget what he was playing, blackjack or shooting craps, probably. I said, Oh, yeah, I know him. I said, You want me to say hi for you? He goes, Well, if you go out and see him, he says, Show him the picture, tell him not to come back. (laughs) You know, I I wouldn't write this as fact, but I will tell you, based on my reporting, that there are uh, a number of current and uh, former high ranking members of the Detroit Mafia that claim that uh, they uh, they gave Steve Wynn his his career <laughs> that if it wasn't for them yeah. Steve Wynn wouldn't be anybody and 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 some of that is um backed up by the fact that that Steve <clears throat> Wynn's first job um you know was tied into the Zerillis um and, and some of the silent ownership of uh, of the frontier and and the Aladdin um, but you know, I wouldn't report as fact that that Steve Quinn, Steve Wynn owes, owes his whole career to the Detroit mob. But I know that uh, there are some uh, specifically. To, you know, I spoke to Tony Zerilli in the last years of his life, and uh, who was the underboss, and and uh, he was he was adamant that uh, Steve Wynn would be nobody if it wasn't for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know that. Uh he had a tough time when did getting a temporary license there in, in Jersey, uh, because there was a lot of, a lot of talk, um, uh, about, you know, his, his nefarious past or when is his, nefarious past. Well, his dad too. I know Steve Wynn's dad had, yeah. had uh, like bingo. I want to say had bingo, uh, mobbed up bingo houses, uh, on the East coast that yeah, he was able yeah. to, I think, leverage some of those connections to being introduced to people in Vegas. But, uh, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I, I know my father worked long and hard to get that, uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the noise straightened out. And, and a lot of it was just that noise that, uh, um, you know, going back and reinvestigating and talking to witnesses again, that, you know, there's always two sides to the story, and uh, he they eventually got the temporary license, and uh, uh, I think around 1980 or something. But it took a couple of years because Jersey was very, 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 very strict on, uh, on who they gave licenses to, and, and uh, it took a while. And then, uh, of course, it's <laughs> I don't think it's there anymore. The, the nugget. Um, but uh, yeah, when when was a character, no doubt about it. Still is. <laughs> well, the Nuggets still in Vegas. It's uh, I don't know about AC. Right. I, I think the Jersey one got uh, either bought up or blown up or something. Detroit never um, 
made any investment in Atlantic City. I know that there were overtures. Um, I, I recently just got my hands on uh, 400 pages of, of uh, Jack Toko's FBI file, the former Don of Detroit. And uh, I've been getting bits and pieces of his, of his file ever since he died. I, I get, you know, a couple hundred pages uh-huh. sent to me every, let's say, six months to a year um, as part of a, a ongoing FOIA request. But uh, <laughs> the stuff I just recently got about a week ago does go into a trip or two that uh, Jack Toko uh, made out to Atlantic City. With Bruno? Uh, that's a separate trip. I think the the Bruno trip was to introduce himself. Right. When he first became the, when he first yeah. became Don, right? Uh, Jack Toko became the 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 Godfather, and officially in in seventy nine, and uh, at the end of seventy nine into eighty, he took a uh, you know a, 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 a diplomacy trip um, where he went and uh, made his way across the East Coast over I think a two week period. Um, I think his brother was with him, and one of the Corrado brothers were with him. And uh, did an, and I think Jimmy Quasarano was with him to do the introductions, and he was officially introduced uh-huh. to all the uh, Godfathers. Uh, I think they started in uh, Cleveland, and then went to Pittsburgh, and then went to Philadelphia, went to New Jersey, and then ended up uh, in, in New York meeting with the five families. But that was separate from a file I recently got that talks about him uh, going into Atlantic City, I believe, in '78, uh, where he took a trip. To have meetings regarding possible investments, didn't it was redacted who he was meeting with. Oh, um, but I, from my research, I, I was never able to find any uh, Detroit mob uh, interests, financial interests in, in Atlantic City. You know, that's one of the reasons why, many reasons why Bruno got clipped was because right. he was. Now, first of all, he wouldn't let his own guys deal drugs, but he would let the Gambinos deal drugs. And but, he let Long John Monterano. And he let, right. So he, so he did give, make exceptions, and the other guys were pissed. But also, my understanding is Bruno basically wouldn't lock down Atlantic City. Like, the, like all, all the money they were going to make from all those casinos, right. Bruno was, hey, Gambinos come in, the Sicilians come in. And and the the he thought it the was rank and files be, were he like, thought there'd be too much heat. Right. He thought there'd be a and you, you got to put it put it into context. This is I mean we can tie it into what we're talking about right now. This is right on the heels of Tony Zarilli getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and that that busted the lid off of the entire skim, skim operation. Now it took another twenty years to get Vegas totally cleaned up, but. Um, you know, Zerilli was busted, I think, in 67, convicted in, like, 74. It was a long process. But, um, you know, it, that was the, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it could be officially acknowledged. It wasn't uh, rumor or speculation that the mob had ownership over most of the Las Vegas casinos and, and was stealing from them. So there was a lot of heat coming down. Angelo Bruno was coming to the, you know, he was in his, uh, you know, in his latter years and didn't want, didn't want the headache. That didn't go over well with the no, rank and file. Over. <laughs> well, meanwhile, you got Nikki Scarfo and Phil Testa yeah. uh, and Tony, Tony Bananas Caponegro, uh, who, who were desperate to, to dive in <laughs> uh, into the deep end of Atlantic City. And that's what they did. Um, the second that uh, Bruno was 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 murdered by by Caponegro. Let me ask you guys, uh, Mike and Scott. Um, just I want to geek out for a moment about 
because I'm, I'm fascinated by the chain of command and the, and the internal politics of a mafia organization. So the Jackaloni brothers, they have all these the very multicultural operation here. They got African-Americans, Lebanese, Chaldean, Jewish guys they're working with. I mean, and and these guys are running significant rackets for the Jackaloni brothers. Did the Jackaloni brothers, I mean, who were the soldiers? Who were the Italian mafia soldiers? Did they have, I mean, were they captains without a crew? Without, without, like, no, they had, they had, Bobby, they had, so- no, they had they Puma. Had soldiers. They had La Puma. They had the sons, Joey and bu- Jack. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Billy had, Ronnie Morelli. Uh, Billy had guys like uh, Sammy Giordano. Okay. Uh, Arthur yeah, Gallo, Bomarito. Joe Coppola, oh, yes. Frankie oh, yeah. Bomarito. The bomb. Yeah. Okay. So, but what did the, and those guys ran their own, like, yeah. weren't, didn't those guys sort of resent that they weren't getting their hooks into the, you understand what I'm saying? A similar, like, I'm we're just sure there was <laughs> resentment between the Italians that weren't uh, making as much money or, or getting as much power as guys like Freddie and Allen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. I haven't read any uh, FBI or, or Michigan State Police or DPD files that go into resentment between the button guys and then the guys that don't have buttons but are power players. Yeah. But I got to believe that there was resentment. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. Mike, do you have any insight into that? Well, I... Um only just in a general sense. I mean, I, I've never talked to anybody who, uh, you know, expressed, uh, you know, those feelings or that they, uh, that there was that type of resentment. Uh, Cause you got to realize that guys like Alan and Freddie are moneymakers. And <laughs> anytime you're a moneymaker and compared to say somebody like Frank Bomarito, who, you know, Frank had connections with the, uh, uh, yeah, Frank was a lot thing. of Frank was a lot of things. I mean, I don't think anyone would have yeah. called him a, a, a huge earner. He had no, other no. attributes and talents that they yeah. could they could use. Tough right. guy, right? <laughs> well, Andy was you know he, and, he could middle for them with with uh, African Americans yeah, and bikers. bikers. Yeah, sure. So, I, and and the bottom line is, as you as you know, is you know to make money, and the guys that are making money are going to be you know uh, held in uh, a higher esteem and. You know, I don't know that somebody is going to go to Billy Jackaloni or Tony Jackaloni and, and if they're not making money and complain about somebody that's making money. Cause <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> that's not going to, that's not a good argument to make. Yeah. There was no complaint department. And more, and more so <laughs> than any of the other um, high ranking members of the Detroit crime family, the Jackalonis were surrounded by all of these different ethnic factions and, and, and not just business, uh, socially. Yeah. Um, they were doing a lot, of, especially with, with Jewish, uh, businessmen, the Jackalonis were doing a ton of, of socializing and, and frankly extorting of, of, of legitimate Jewish businessmen. Oh, yeah. But if, yeah. you, if you went across and that, that, and this was all going on, like we said, on the West side of town, Tony Jack moved his, uh, headquarters in the seventies, uh, from uh, Detroit proper to Southfield and the South Athletic Club, which was run by Lenny Schultz, another Jewish mob associate. Uh, Billy um, began a, um, a romantic relationship with a Jewish woman on the West Side uh, that became almost like his second wife that made him spend a lot of time over on the West Side. And uh, if you went to the other side of town at that at that time period and you went into the Corrado crew or into the Licavoli crew or into the Zerilli or Toco crew, they weren't 
socializing with people no. that were Jewish. No, not or, at all. Or, uh, or, or Middle Eastern. They were socializing with other Italians. No, that was the more traditional Siciliano, yeah. like the, you know, uh, members only <laughs> right. environment. So, I mean, this this was well, a whole yeah, new world because, on this yeah, side of town. And, and once again, if, if money is your game, you know, those Jewish businessmen yep. knew how to make money, and, and they and they wanted to pay for the and they wanted to pay for the privilege of hanging out with Tony and yeah, Billy. Sure, yeah, and and you know we talked about this before. The the Jackalones, their their mantra, their saying, whatever it was, shake a Jew down a week, <laughs> shake a Jew a week. <laughs> that's, what that's, that's what they would say to guys like Lenny Schultz and Bernie <laughs> yeah, Schrott yeah. and and these <laughs> these other Jewish, uh, uh, you know, they were like these operatives that in addition to being, you know, earners in their own right and making money in whatever rackets they were running, you know, another big part of their job was, was teeing up extortion <laughs> targets. <laughs> like yep. bring all your friends to dinner. I want to see how many of them I can get my hooks into. Jeez. Yeah. And, and of course, after Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, their, their stock went way up as yeah. far as want to be seen and be seen with it. I mean, it's kind of a morbid kind of a way, but, you know, oh, okay. Uh, you know these these guys, and I don't know why they'd want to be seen with them, but they had a you know a fascination and attraction uh, more so after after Hoffa disappeared. I mean, I I I, <laughs> I saw it firsthand as a kid. Uh, my grandpa, yeah. who I loved dearly, and I I miss every day, and I have such fabulous memories of him and had such a great relationship with him. And my grandpa was not a mob guy in any way, shape or form. He wasn't a criminal, but uh, all of my grandpa's friends were members of the Capitol Street Social Club crew. Um, And those were the guys that he socialized with. And he was a big gambler. And uh, he was someone that would uh, run around with Billy Jackaloni on the west side of town back in the uh, 80s and 90s and um, 70s, 80s, 90s and uh, like kind of living in the fast lane but was smart enough to know that you couldn't get half pregnant and would always, <laughs> would always tell me like, listen, uh, you know, you know, Uncle Freddie, Uncle Alan, you know, they're great guys, but never lend, never go, no, never go to them for money. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and my grandpa had a situation um where my grandma's uh, medical bills were were mounting, and uh, he told me that uh, Billy Jackaloni and some of the guys came to my grandpa and said, "Hey, we know that you're you're hurting. Why don't we we want to help you out? We'll we'll put some of your money on the street for you." And uh, my grandpa was like, "Yeah, that no thanks, but no thanks." That's smart. Um, yeah. yeah, he's my grandpa was like, "I don't care how." Uh, what what financial hardship I'm going through, uh, I know that there's a line I won't cross. So my grandpa was obviously one of the smarter ones, never yeah. got arrested, never uh, got shooken down by them. But those were, these were the guys that I was, <laughs> that I, that I saw in the flesh. Um, guys yeah. that, that there was a lot of cachet and sex appeal to being able to say that they were friends with Billy Jackaloni. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, uh, you know, that they play golf with Billy Jackaloni. I mean, that was nothing with my grandpa, frankly. Billy and Tony would use my grandpa as a way to make money on the golf course. Because he was like a my golf grandpa was a, You know, my grandpa was a, 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 a outstanding amateur golfer that he actually won the Michigan uh, amateur and uh, was, oh, some, wow. was someone that uh, was the club champion at Hillcrest, which was the 
the golf yeah, course that was away. owned by Jack Toko. And, uh, yeah, they would go on the, cor- the course with him, and they, they'd hustle with him. They'd use him to, to hustle other golfers. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, uh, yeah, so I, I saw it, and um, it, you know, it's, it's uh, I think a lot of these guys, they, they want to live a movie script. They don't want to. Sure, yeah. <laughs> they don't, they, they want to, and they want to live a movie script by uh, taking a chaise lounge and, and putting it right up to the pool, but not actually jumping in okay. to the pool. Yeah, then you end up yeah. like, like guys like Leach. Right, like, but then <laughs> it's very, that's a slippery slope. Right, right. And you got Harvey Leach, right. uh, for people that don't know, before Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, uh, the year before, Harvey Leach was one of these Jewish businessmen that uh, got all chummy with the Jackalonis and um, asked them for, for money to invest in his business. And the next thing you know, they're extorting him and they're 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 busting him out of his business, pushing him out of his business. Uh, he... <laughs> made some unwise decisions, uh, A, taking money from them, B, possibly engaging in a romance with one of Billy Jackaloni's girlfriends. And, uh, you know, on his uh, wedding day, he ends up in the trunk of his car. And he was on on his way to a meeting uh, with Tony Jackaloni and uh, Lenny Schultz uh, when he disappeared. Kind of like Jimmy yeah. Hoffa, who was on his way to a meeting yeah. with Tony Jackaloni and Lenny Schultz, and disappeared. And and believe me, those those Jewish businessmen know that. Yeah. I mean, that's if if nothing else, it sent a sent a strong message. I'm actually interested, Mike, uh, on your take on this. Uh, do you think there's any possibility that they killed Jimmy Hoffa at Lenny Schultz's house? Uh, no, I I don't. I don't think they would take that chance. Even if you put it into context that they most likely killed Harvey Leach at Lenny Schultz's house. Uh, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I don't, I, I know Lenny was probably more involved in that uh, with Leach than he would be with. Well, we know for sure. Uh, we know for uh, sure that Leach was on his way to a meeting at Lenny's house right. with Tony and Lenny. And we know they never came yeah. home from that meeting. And we know that yeah. Lenny told his family to take off for the day. Uh, I believe that Harvey Leach was murdered at Lenny Schultz's house. And yeah. even though I've thrown all of my chips into the middle of the table on the Carlo Licata theory for mm-hmm. Jimmy Hoffa, and I still stand by that theory. Yeah, so I've, heard, I've heard so many, I've had so many people tell me it on both sides of the law. Recently, I, or not, let's say in the last 18 months, um, I had someone that I consider trustworthy um, who who is a criminal who that uh, worked very closely with the Jackalonis and Lenny Schultz who told me that Lenny told uh, that Lenny confessed to him uh, that uh, that they had whacked out Hoffa at his house. So I, I, I wrote about it. I haven't really gotten that much feedback on it, but I was interested on I, I'm open to it. I'm not I'm not. Subscribing to it, but because because of the fact that I believe they felt comfortable enough to murder someone at Lenny Schultz's house in 1974, and the fact that Lenny Schultz's house is a five-minute drive from the Marcus Red Fox, where Jimmy Hoffa was last seen, I Uh am open to the belief or the theory that he was possibly taken to Schultz's house. 
Yeah, I just, um, you know, certainly anything's a possibility. I, I do subscribe to the theory that when he was picked up, he was taken someplace close because he wouldn't have, you know, uh, he, he wouldn't have, he, he was supposed to meet everybody there. Right. Now they're taking him to somewhere else. Where are we going? I'm just not sure how, how strong of a connection there would be uh, between Schultz and Hoffa if they said, oh, we're going over to Lenny's house, if, if, if Hoffa knew, I mean, he, he probably knew of Lakata. With Lakata, I think that he had had sit-downs with the Jackalonis right. at the Lakata house. So, right, so he so was I, familiar with it. With Lenny, and, though, we do know that Hoffa and Lenny went, I mean, they went back. I mean, Lenny and you know was a yeah. was a labor consultant and someone that I I know Hoffa had known for for quite a while. Now, if he would feel comfortable right. enough going to a sit down like that at Lenny's house, I I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I I don't either. I I I just think, uh, you know, to me, if they took him somewhere. It would it would have been Lakata's place, and Lakata ended up uh, dead on the six year anniversary, yeah, yeah. almost to the minute, yeah. almost to the minute. Jimmy Hoffa most likely died between two forty five and three o'clock uh, on July third, nineteen seventy five, and uh, Carlo Lakata uh, ended up dead uh, at about uh, two fifty five on July thirtieth, nineteen eighty one. Um, with uh, some gunshot wounds to the chest, uh, the gun about 10 feet away without any fingerprints, and uh, the Tocos, kind of like the Jackalones, who were very um, conscious about making their, uh, or Tony Jackaloni at least, who was very conscious about giving himself an alibi for July 30th, 1975. From my research, Ton and, and Jack, uh, the Toko brothers were very, very uh, public with their um, uh, with their whereabouts that that afternoon. They were at a uh, one of their nephews' graduation parties uh, up in East Lansing uh, for from mm-hmm. Michigan State, and that they were um, talking to a lot of people at the party that they wouldn't have normally been speaking to. What, to what try year to was that? An album. What year was that? Eighty one. Mike, what, I mean, you were around then. What, what did you? What were your thoughts on the alleged suicide of Lakata? Uh, as best as I can determine, I'm trying to think back. Um, obviously, we had heard about it, and uh, you know, I, I don't know how suspicious we thought it, it was. Um, I think it got more suspicious as the as the years went on. Probably, and then uh, I remember talking to folks about it, but nobody seemed to have any any insight as to, I, I think they just said, well, it was a suicide. And his wife was present and that's Jack, oh, boy, she, that's okay. Jack Toko's sister. That. She testified right. that she right. saw him. No, kill him? she was taking a nap, Oh, but she was at the residence. There's some belief that maybe she wasn't taking a nap. Like Janice. Yeah. And Richie. No, not, <laughs> no, not like Janice. Is that what you're saying? No, not like Janice, but like, <laughs> Open the door for somebody. Oh, I see. Yeah, I don't think I would I, never I, say I, that I, one I, of the Toko sisters, uh, you know, pulled a Janice yeah. Soprano. But I, I question whether or not she might have aided and abetted her her uh, her husband's murder. Yeah, and that I believe it was a murder. murder. I mean, it's officially ruled a suicide, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, other than, uh, you know, being aware that it happened and, and the coincidence of it, um, I don't recall anybody, at least that I talked to having any, any, uh, firsthand insight, even secondhand insight to, uh, to what went on or why it went on, or if it was, uh, you know, it was a murder as opposed to a suicide. The, the anniversary of, isn't that sort of melodramatic for Jack Toko? Yes, but I think the Detroit Mafia historically is, I shouldn't say think, I know the Detroit Mafia historically is um, very fond of message murders and uh, sending <laughs> sending word through homicides to other people or other yeah. parts of the crime family. Symbolic, yeah. And uh, I think that uh, Carlo Licata tried to, this is, again, this is my theory. It doesn't mean, I think Carlo Licata tried to leverage his place in, in the Hoffa conspiracy. And I don't think he really had any place in the Hoffa conspiracy other than probably lending his house right. to be the place where the, where they clipped him. Um, I don't, I don't think Carlo. And that was only was because there. it happened to be, happened to be close to his house <laughs> right. and it happened to be a place right. that the Jackalones had met Jimmy Hoffa at yeah. before. Because it was only, um, you know, about a five-mile drive from, from Tony Jack's headquarters. Because there, otherwise there'd be no reason to right. bring him into that conspiracy. Um, and, and, I, and, you know, if he, if he was even there, I mean, they just might have said— we go, No, I don't think—no, what I'm saying is I don't think Carl Licata was there. Yeah, I don't think he was there. And, I, and maybe— he even knew right. until maybe later. Yes. Because I, I don't know that they would have told them. Uh, I, say it happened there, right? Um, you know— I don't know that they would have shot him or garroted him or whatever, rolled him up in a rug and took him out in the car and, uh, uh, and, and disposed of the body. He may not even, he may have gotten home right. and said, okay, they had a meeting and my rug is missing or right. whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, but I don't, you know, and then later on he may have suspected, but I don't think they're going to, if, if he would even brace somebody like Tony or Billy about it, I don't think he would. And even if they did, I don't think he would tell them. There's, there's just been there's been them. way too many quote unquote suicides. Um, when you look at uh, the Detroit Mafia, um, the murders that have been tied to the Detroit Mafia, or, or deaths that have been you know that can that that you can trace to the Detroit Mafia, there have been way too many uh, suspicious suicides to to think that it's. It's not a pattern. At least it gets in my in my, in my research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And including one, and I got no problem uh, bringing this up on here. Including one that I that I uh, suspect uh, from from more recently in two thousand and seven. I believe that Carlo the Bomb Marito, uh, Frank the Bomb's son, was was <laughs> was murdered. Uh, it was hot dosed, and I believe that uh, Billy Jacaloni yeah. and Frank the Bomb uh, signed off on it, ordered it. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't push anything past the uh, past the bomber because um, he and Carlo. They, they, I know they had a beef over uh, when Frank was the uh, you know taking catalytic converters and and uh, you know converting them to uh, precious metals or whatever. And then uh, I think Carlo got in his way. Carlo was a junk. Well, at the end, Carlo was just a junkie. Yeah, he was. He was a, yeah. But I think Carlos started trying to take over some of Frank's business. They were those kind of converters. And I mean, you're not making a whole lot of money, but I think just the fact that he tried it 
probably piss Frank off. And uh, um, yeah, that's. I don't think there's any love lost between the two of them. Yeah. Well, the first thing he said to me when I, when I, the first day, first uh, five seconds that I met Frank the Bomb Bomberito, and I, his son had just died in the previous couple months, and I said, I'm really sorry to hear about Carlo, and he said that motherfucker got what he deserved. So, yeah. for, for the first thing you say to a reporter, I mean, yeah. it's, it says something, yeah. right? And uh, correct, correct me, uh, Mike and Scott, if I'm wrong, but back to Lakata, I mean, he, he wasn't very well thought of, right? Wasn't he sort of like considered like nepotism, like that he even he had his... He was Fredo. That, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. I, that was my understanding. Yeah. Is that? He, yeah, he was the son of a of a yeah, powerful mobster from, in L.A. that got shipped out LA, to Detroit yeah. uh, as a way yeah. to 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 you know mend fences between his dad and Joe Zarilli, who had had a falling out in the twenties, and uh, as a way to to to. Bury the hatchet. Joe's really decided to, or Black Bill Toco decided to marry his daughter off to uh, Nick Licata's son Carlo. Carlo moved to Detroit, and the the Toco brothers carried him. Yeah, yeah. That, that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't uh, known as a great businessman or or a tough guy. Or, right. In fact, there's that story from Jimmy Fratiano's yeah, that's book. A great, yeah, that when he went on a hit in in, in L.A. in the '40s, he started crying. <laughs> Right. And it was like, what's right. Papa going to think of this? Right. And they're like, what, what? Just shut up and shoot the guy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, we watched we watched Carlo for for a while in the late seventies, early eighties, and he never went anywhere, never did anything, never met with anybody that we could see. Yeah. Uh, over you know weeks of watching him, so it was, yeah, he was kind of a non-entity. Well, Mike, uh, we really appreciate you here uh, giving us your insight and perspective. Uh, you are a true well. OG MVP. <laughs> yeah, returning champ. This yeah. is a second appearance on our, our show. <laughs> thanks a lot, Mike. No and problem. Uh, again, thanks for your service and, and thanks for helping us out. And um, quite welcome. Good luck. And uh, continued good luck. We will we'll have you on again soon, hopefully, and be okay. breaking down Call some anytime. some more uh, fascinating organized crime stories, some history, some anecdotes. Mike lived it, lived a movie script. We should we should actually sit down with Mike and start hammering out the screenplay for, for <laughs> Mike Carone, uh, the 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 life and times of Mike Carone. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, all joking aside, I mean, Mike saw things and did things in his career that uh, most uh, people that go into law enforcement can only dream of, and uh, yeah, he was he he was a true superstar. So thanks a lot, Mike. Um, You're quite welcome. R.I.P. to Paul Brusiloff uh, and the whole uh, Capitol Street Social Club crew. They're all gone. I know Superfly Christoph is still uh, running around there somewhere, but I didn't really consider him a, a, a major staple of that crew, but he was, you know, he had a very colorful nickname. Everyone's called him Superfly. They still call him Superfly. Uh, he's still out there, but everyone else, <laughs> everyone else from the Capitol Street Social Club uh, is now uh, catching their chips uh, with the big casino in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Please uh, continue to listen to the original Gangsters podcast. Every week we'll bring you fresh content. Like, subscribe, share, spread the word however you can. We'll be back next week. We're going to do an interview with a author who is writing a book on Elmore Leonard, the famous Detroit fictional crime writer, but also uh, is a guy that has dived or dove 
into some uh, some interesting parts of, of OC out in the East Coast that I want to talk about, specifically related to uh, what was known as the Black Woodstock. Um, in 1978 in Maryland was a uh, music festival put on by the Genovese crime family and uh, ended up, uh, four people ended up uh, being killed in the fallout from that festival in 1978. And uh, my buddy Chad Cushions is going to come on. He's going to talk about his Elmore Leonard book. He's going to talk about a book that he put out uh, last year about John Bonham, uh, Bonzo, the the, uh, uh, the the legendary drummer for Led Zeppelin. And he's going to talk about the Black Woodstock. So that's next week. For Jimmy Bucciolato, for Mike Carone, this is Scott Bernstein, OG Podcast, out. Out.